I'll ask you, if you will, to turn to Isaiah chapter 55. And I should say that um, on rare occasions I feel comfortable when I speak. This is not one of those mornings. So, <laughs> so you can be in prayer. Isaiah 55. Uh, let me give just a little bit of groundwork so that uh, we know kind of where we're sitting uh, since this is, ordinarily we go through books of the Bible, but this is kind of a, a one-off uh, message. So Matt is in Colorado this morning at a meeting, or on his way there to a meeting, and so he'll be back next week, and I'm pretty sure we're starting again in the book of James. But Isaiah 55, it comes in a very particular spot in Scripture. And uh, if you were to take the book of Isaiah, you would divide it into two pieces. Chapters 1 through 39 address the judgment that was coming to the nation of Israel. Chapter 40 through 36 is primarily devoted to the hope that is given to them. So we're coming in on Isaiah chapter 55 just to place it down inside of context, it's the end of a 15-chapter um, hopeful discourse that starts at chapter 40. So 1 through 39, judgment, 40 through 55 is a message of hope. So that will kind of nestle you down inside of what the verses are saying, at least a, a general overall sense. And I'm going to read the whole chapter and... Um, now that you've gotten seated and are comfortable, I'll ask you to stand just in honor to God's Word. And we'll read from Isaiah chapter 55. Um, there may be a Bible there near you. If not, it will be on the screen so you can follow along. And this is what it says. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me, and eat what is good, and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and a commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you did not know, and a nation that you did not know shall run to you because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts and your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth in singing. And all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of thorns shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle. 
and it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. I invite you to pray with me. Lord, as we come to your word now, a lot of things have been accomplished over the course of the week for those of us uh, who work outside the home, those of us who work inside of the home. It's been a lot of activity and a lot of energy spent. And as Ross had mentioned earlier, some of it was happy expenditure of energy and other of it was sad expenditure of energy. But we come now this morning having sung and at least opened up our hearts to you. And now we pray and get ready to hear your word. So, Lord, I'm reminded that um, when your word is clear, you accomplish what you set out for it to accomplish. And so I ask that you would guard my tongue, grant me clarity, and I pray that those who listen will have clarity as they listen as well. And so I ask for your help, knowing that you do never disappoint us. You are faithful to you, what you said you would do. And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. It was over. The nation was dead. What they thought would never happen had finally happened. And that was that they had found the end of God's patience. Over the course of years, they had despised his kindness. They had disdained his grace. And they did it so frequently that God, who is always full of mercy, eventually released them from his protection. Since they would not heed his voice, perhaps they would heed his silence, and God released them from his protection. The warnings that had come across the years had been plenteous. The nation had heard the prophets who predicted their destruction. And inside of the warnings of the prophets, there was always a thread of hope that was nestled down inside of there that if the nation repented, and if they returned to their God, this sure destruction would turn to a great deliverance. After all, the people who were in the book of Isaiah were God's people. He had delivered them from Egypt. He had made them into a great nation. They prospered, and then they forgot God. They had heard the prophets. It had been 230 years since King David was reigning over the nation of Israel. It was at the apex of its popularity at that time, followed shortly thereafter by Solomon, and the nation of Israel was one of the world-leading nations at the time. But that had been 200 years ago, and it had now been under demise for a period of 200 years. The warnings from the prophets across these years was steady, and it was clear. But they didn't just ignore the prophets. Their own nation, some years ago, had been divided in two. It was divided into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And 130 years before the section that we're reading, the northern kingdom had gone into captivity, taken captive by the Assyrians that were gobbled up by that nation. No doubt, seeing their brothers and cousins and sisters being gobbled up by the Assyrians struck fear of some sort in their hearts. Perhaps it created some pause and some reflection about what they needed to do with God and whether they should respond to him. But it wasn't long before they forgot God again. Their human hearts and our human hearts 
have a tremendous capacity to think that we can somehow escape and outrun the judgment of God. But finally, after the decades, after the centuries, it finally happened. God's patience had been stretched and stretched and stretched until at last it came to an end. And the Babylonian nation who had become a power rushed in after a two-year siege and they burned the city of Jerusalem to the ground. In the process, they destroyed the temple where the people worshipped. A lot of the people were killed. And many more were taken prisoner and deported to Babylon. Now this leftover contingent of people found themselves as prisoners in a foreign country. They're displaced. Their political center has been destroyed. Their place of worship had been overrun. They had lost their land, and they found themselves now 500 miles from home. They had played the fool, and they had ignored God's entreaties, and now this truth was settling down into their souls. Now they were paying attention. Now they were listening to what God was saying. What had seemed like a party of freedom was ending just in the way that God said it was. And their souls were beginning to taste the bitterness of consequence. And for them, there was no equivocation. They weren't trying to wiggle out of it anymore. There was no blaming other people. There were no efforts to uh, absolve themselves. There were no excuses. They had ignored God's voice. They were condemned to captivity. They were far from home, far from worship, and far from pride, finally. They were broken. They were convinced that they were without hope. They were convinced that God would no longer regard them. Shame was their captor. Guilt was their jailer. Punishment was their future. The question I have for us this morning is, have you ever found yourself in Babylon? I have. Where I felt that God was so far that I could not reach him and he would not reach me. Where I felt so much the guilt of my sin that I feared that I could never come out of it. That I would be stuck there forever. Well, this is the backdrop of Isaiah chapter 55. This is the last in that 15 chapter section I mentioned earlier. The, the punished dared not hope for a redemption. And they were felt that they were condemned beyond any kind of retrieval. And so for the last 15 chapters, God has been extending his offer of forgiveness to these rebellious people. Reassuring them of his mercy. Confirming to them his grace. And over and over again, he said, if you were to read through these 15 chapters, you would hear over and over again, you would hear him saying, listen to my voice. Hear my words. And then he would offer forgiveness to them and so when we come to Isaiah chapter 55 it lays out this offer one more time for this nation that was uh, far now from their home place and far from from God the chapter is divided into two main sections we'll not try to complicate it the first is the invitation that takes place in verses 1 through 5 and then the return that is encouraged in verses 6 through 13 so first at verse 1 under the invitation, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. And the invitation here goes out, and we, it's important for us to understand who is invited. And it says very plainly that come, everyone. 
So this invitation to come to God is open and available to everyone who will listen. Everyone, whether they were Jews or Greeks, whether they were close to God or far from God, this call goes out. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. There are two criteria, however, nestled down inside of that everyone. That if we're going to receive this message of forgiveness, we have to crawl up inside of those two criteria. The first is this. It says, come, everyone who thirsts. The invited are qualified by these two characteristics. First, they are parched in their hearts. And secondly, they are impoverished in their souls. It says to us that those who are thirsty, those who have gone down to Babylon, who are captive in a far country because they've worshipped gods that would never satisfy, these people who find this thirst inside of their souls, these are the ones who are given this invitation. All of you who have thirsty souls, God is saying, come. But it also says impoverished souls, those who have no money, those with deep need but have no resources. It says to us, come if you have no money to buy. All of their money was gone. They were deported. They were away from their, from their nation, away from the way that they made money. They were stuck down in Babylon. They had no money. And their physical money, of course, was gone. But they also were revealing by their captivity that they had no bargaining chips with God. They were bereft of any kind of bartering power that would somehow gain God's favor. But it's precisely this kind of person that God extends this offer to. Come, come to the waters. If your soul is thirsty and if you are impoverished in your soul, come to this offer that God gives. And so as they come, they begin to hear now the arithmetic of grace. Because if when you read in the, the last part of that verse 1, it says, Come and get what satisfies. Come buy the wine and the milk. But come without money and without price. And so the math of grace is this, that the people who have nothing but need everything come to a God who will do both. He will supply what is needed, and he will do it at his own expense. The forgiven never can afford the forgiveness, but it is free to them. It's not free Totally, because a price has been paid, but they are free and they are forgiven. So that is the invitation in verse 1. But then there's a question in verse 2, because he's trying to push them on to receive this offer. And so he asks simply, why do you spend your money for what is not bread? And your labor for what does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good. And delight yourselves in the richest affair. Why go after the things that do not satisfy? Why chase after things that are not truly bred, things that do not truly sustain you? Why search after what will only leave your soul hollow? It reminds us of the words of another prophet, Haggai, a smaller book towards the latter part of the Old Testament. But here's what Haggai says in chapter 1, verse 5. Now this is what the old Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. You've planted much but you've harvested a little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never quench your thirst. You put on your clothes, but you cannot get warm enough. You earn your wages only to put them to a purse with holes in it. There is a diminishing set of returns when we pursue something that is not God, that leaves us hungry even though we've eaten, that leaves us cold even though we've clothed ourselves, that leaves us poor even though we've saved money into our purse. And so at the end of verse 2, it says, listen, eat, 
Delight. Don't keep doing what you have done. Turn and listen to me and eat what I offer and delight in what I give. And so verse 3, the invitation is repeated. It says, incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant. My steadfast, sure love for David. Incline, come, hear, live. Why is it repeated so frequently? The invitation was being given to a distraught people who found themselves destitute and seemingly abandoned. They thought that they had no hope. And the repeated invitation was designed to break through their despair to help them see that even though they were sitting under God's punishment, God was still reaching out in mercy. And what he offers to them is his, is his steadfast and sure love. It is difficult to awaken the despondent to the hope of forgiveness. These people were stuck in the lethargy of despair, and they found it difficult to believe what God offered them. Have you ever found yourself there? That you feel like you've messed up so royally? That God will never step in? That God will never rescue you? You would like to repent, but you feel yourself in the lethargy of despair and you feel that you cannot move forward, that somehow God is just beyond your grip or just beyond your grasp. It was difficult for them to believe and to trust God, and it's difficult sometimes for us to believe and trust God. And so he goes on in verses 4 and 5. I'll not go into these by detail, but he promises them renewal. And he he notes that he had made of David a great nation. And he reminds them that despite the fact that they are deported into another nation, in time God can renew their nation to greatness. So the invitation goes out. But part of this invitation is an invitation to return and to repent, to do things differently. And so we look at verse 6. Where he says, seek the Lord while he may be found. There is an end to God's patience at some point. We don't normally know when that is, but there is an end to God's patience. And so it says, seek the Lord while while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon Seek the Lord is the verb. Call upon him is the verb. Forsake your own way is a verb. Return to the Lord is a verb. And the response of God is a verb, for he will abundantly pardon. Seek, call, forsake, return, and then God will abundantly pardon. That's the part that trips us up. I forgive people. But I hold in the back of my mind the idea that they've betrayed me. And so while I can say the right words and make the right facial features, in the back of my mind there lurks the idea that these guys are going to betray me again. I forgive people. But I fully expect that they're going to pay some kind of a penance. That they're going to have to make some amends in order to prove that they really mean their repentance. And I do the same for myself. I have difficulty believing that God forgives me all the way. 
I feel that somehow I need to earn my way back into his favor. Forgiveness cannot be as free as God stated that it was. Do you suffer from that same problem? Some days we feel close to God. Other days we feel so far away that we can hardly lift our heads. And that is why God is so insistent in this chapter that he is offering abundant pardon, as it says to us at the end of verse 8. I'm sorry, at the end of verse 7. He will abundantly pardon. It's not just that God pardons us, but he abundantly pardons us. God will abundantly pardon us, and the pardon, abundant pardon is offered on the strength of three pillars that we'll look at just briefly, but you'll find them in verses 8 and 9. 10 and 11, 12 and 13. Let me lay those out for you before we go over them. The first is abundant pardon is offered on the strength of this pillar that the thought of abundant pardon boggles our mind. Secondly, the word of abundant pardon soothes our souls. Thirdly, the joy of abundant pardon breaks our brokenness. It's no mistake here that when it says at the end of verse 7, our God will abundantly pardon. And then at verse 8, it immediately goes into this, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. God's thoughts are not our own. God's thoughts are higher than our own. Most of you will know that my brother passed away late last year at a, at a young age. Not too terribly long after he was diagnosed with cancer. He called me, and I, can t I could tell that he had been weeping. Unusual for my brother. He wasn't a very emotional guy. And he started off saying, you, you know the, that verse in Isaiah that says that God's ways are higher than our ways, and his thoughts are higher than I thought, our thoughts. And I said yes, fully expecting that he would talk about surrendering his desire to live to the ultimate plans of God. But that's not what he said. He could hardly get it out because he was weeping. But he said that what we don't understand about God's ways is not the greatness of God as he superintends the universe, but the kindness of God in forgiving us our sins. God's ways are not our ways. We cannot imagine a God who abundantly pardons. The forgiveness I offer always comes with a hitch. You perform, I forgive. The whole point of the wonder of God's forgiveness is that he is not like us. His ways are higher than our own. So talk to me about a God who is all-powerful, who rules the expanse of the universe, and I'll at least understand that there is a God who supersedes my intelligence. Talk to me about a God who created the sheets of walls of galaxies of stars. And I can grasp that his creative powers exceed mine. The Greeks and the Romans had their gods by which they tried to explain the universe. The Hindus and the Buddhists could join in a conversation marveling at the greatness of God. Talk to me about a God who is sovereign and holy. A God who controls all things by his name and by his person. 
a God who demands righteousness and punishes evil. Talk to me about a God like that, and I will at least understand that he has to control all things, and that the one who made all things controls all things, and that he's in charge. And the one who is in charge makes the rules, and the rest of us obey them. And even if I don't agree with the rules, at least in my mind I can comprehend that I should obey them. And if you talk to me about these things long enough, I can look around and I can see that the Muslims can carry on that conversation as well. Talk to me about the intrinsic design of creation, all the pushes and pulls, the cause and effect of the universe. And I will understand that there stands a designer outside of it and behind it all. And though I can't give a reason for all of the design, I can at least understand that there is a design. And if we talk long enough, the animist and the tribal worshipers of nature can saunter in and they can join the conversation about that kind of God. Talk to me about the complexities of humanity and the wonder uh, of human capacity and achievement. Talk to me about being made in God's image and all the glories that come with that. I might not understand all that it means, but my mind can grasp the wonder of it, and I can be amazed at man's ability. And if we talk about those things long enough, we'll find some camaraderie with a secularist who doesn't believe there's a God, but nevertheless marvels at man's complexity. I can talk to a lot of people about the power of God. Nature reveals it. Humanity believes it. The little gods the little G-gods that people have made are designed to explain it. But talk to me about a God who forgives. And now we step into an arena I cannot fully grasp. A God that I have wronged offers to forgive me. His thoughts are not mine. Begin to talk about a God who forgives. And the Roman and Greek gods have nothing to contribute Talking about a God who is personally involved in the affairs of broken people and the Hindu and the Buddhist are shamed into silence. Talk to me about a God who forgives the sins of people, who extends himself in mercy, who gently restores the broken, and the Islam faith has nothing to add. Talk to me about a personal God who knows both my name and my need, and the secularist, secularist finds that his mind goes blank. He has nothing to say. Talk to me about a God who abundantly pardons, and all the other gods have to slink away. They always demand their due. They know nothing about forgiveness. They can mimic the true God until grace is introduced, and then they are revealed for the sham that they actually are. The little G gods have all been carved out of human imagination to explain the power of God. But in all of our imaginings, we could never, ever, ever design a God who actually forgives. All these small gods enslave us. They take us captive, and they demand more and more and more until there is nothing left of us. They charge rent on our souls, and if they can mortgage the deed to our eternal lives, they will do that. They know nothing about forgiveness. They have nothing to offer us. They have no breath to breathe. They have no heart to love. They have no soul to care. They have no eyes to see. They have no mercy to give. They have no grace to extend. They demand. Our God delivers. They punish. Our God forgives. They exhaust. Our God revives. 
Do we dare believe it? Do we dare believe that all our sins can be washed as white as snow? Do we dare to believe that our consciences can be fully, fully clean? The invitation is to come and hear and eat and delight. The thought of abundant pardon boggles our mind. The word of abundant pardon soothes our souls. Verses 10 and 11 say this. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. The word will accomplish its purpose. What is the purpose of God's word? To invite us to drink of the living water so we never thirst again. You take off from the very beginning of the book, in the beginning God. We may have somehow come up with that idea on our own. I don't know. But you take off from that point and go through the rest of this book. And what is being revealed to us is the truth about a God who forgives. Something we never could have known had he not written it out in his word. And so we read through the Old Testament and we see the stories of how God acts and interacts. We see how he names himself and what he reveals to us by his names. We read on through the Old Testament. We get into Isaiah chapter 40 and in the beginning of this section that we're talking about, it says, um, a voice says cry and it says, well, what shall I cry? Well, the first thing to cry is level out the path, raise up the valleys, Flatten out the mountains and do that so that the runner, the, the, the herald who's bringing the good news, the gospel, so that they can run without any kind of imposition. Uh, do all that. And then what, does, what is it that the, the herald is supposed to say? And it says, tell him to say, behold our God. And then in the chapter 40, it talks about behold our God. What does that mean? What are we to see when we behold God? And it says that he goes forth in strength with his right arm. But then in the very next verses, it's saying that he gathers up the, the children, the, the, the gentle. Uh, he gently gathers them like sheep in his other arm. So the strength of God and the tenderness of God are combined. But we read our way through this whole book, and as we're making our way through, we're, we're, we're rolling along. We're kind of clipping off centuries at a time and, and decades at a time. But then all of a sudden, we make our way into the New Testament, and all of a sudden, this, this rush past and through history begins to slow down. And almost like slow motion, we enter now into the Gospels, and as it begins to tell us about Jesus. And then as we move further into the Gospels, it comes to this next section where all four Gospels slow down to almost a, a crawling pace because of the topic that they're using, the topic they're addressing. What is that topic? It's the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's very obvious if you just read briefly through the Bible that you will find out that that is the central focal point of all of the Bible. And lest we miss it, unless we understand, underestimate its importance, it makes it very plain to us that the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus is the means to abundant pardon. It cannot be any other way. Sin is not just swept under the rug. Sin is paid for, but is paid for by a perfect son so that those of us who are broken can go free. That all gives way to the joy of abundant pardon. 
that breaks the brokenness. And so you read at verse 12, For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Anthropomorphic uh, imagery, of course, giving human characteristics to the mountains and the trees. But it says at 13, Instead of a thorn shall come up cypress, instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle, and it shall be, and it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. And now for 2,000 years, our poets and our songwriters have been trying to express in various ways this good news of great joy. And if we stop and reflect long enough, those of us who have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ and found pardon in Him and seen that He not only forgave us but abundantly forgave us, we too will sing these songs. And so I could probably take a, 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 a big cross-section across all of church history. I'll mention just two songs to you. One that we sometimes sing here called Marvelous Grace of Our Loving Lord. Grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. Yonder on Calvary's mount outpoured, there where the blood of the Lamb was spilt, grace, grace, God's grace, Grace that is greater than all, in, all our sin. Sin and despair, like the sea waves cold, threaten my soul with infinite loss. Grace that is greater, yes, grace untold, points to the refuge, the mighty cross. Marvelous, infinite, matchless grace, freely bestowed on all who believe. All you who are longing to see His face, will you this moment His grace receive? There's another older song from the 1700s written by Charles Wesley. It's old English, but I invite you to listen through the old English to hear what it's saying. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain, for me who him to death pursued. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me. He left his Father's throne above, so free, so infinite his grace. He emptied himself of all but love and bled for Adam's helpless race. Tis mercy all, immense and free, for, oh, my God, it found out me. And then this verse that uh, I like a lot of songs, but this may be, this is one of my favorites, verses. I invite you just to roll with the imagination of what's being said. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray as if I'm sitting here in prison, imprisoned by my sins. And, and God looks and his, his gaze brings to me a, 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 an enlivening ray. So long my imprisoned spirit lay fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? No condemnation, now I dread. Jesus, and all in him is mine. Alive in him my living head, and clothed in righteousness divine. Bold I approach the eternal throne, 
and claim the crown through Christ my own. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? We might ask, what does Isaiah have to do with us, the book of Isaiah? Are we just metaphorically sticking our place, ourselves into the land of Babylon to try to imagine what it must have been like for them? And the answer is a resounding no. Make your way all the way to the end of the Bible, Revelation chapter 22, the last one in the, in the totality of the book. And verse 17 says this, and you'll hear the echoes of Isaiah 55. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. The invitation of Isaiah is the invitation of Revelation, is the invitation of Crossway Wilmington this morning. Come. Whoever will, come. Let's bow our heads to pray. Lord Jesus, I know that until we step on the shore of heaven, we won't understand the depths of grace, however much we might try to describe it. Oh Lord, I pray that you help us to see that you are a great God and that you can wash us clean when we look to your Son as the one who, is, who died in our place and resurrected so that we could lead a new life. So Lord, I ask that your truth would do what you said it would do, and I pray that it would have fruit in people's lives. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.